Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Ann Wojcicki. She's the CEO of 23andMe. Over 12 million people have forked over 100 bucks or more for the company's DNA test, where you spit into a vial, mail the vial into the company, and get a report back with information about your ancestry or about your health. The genetic test might reveal you're related to people you've never met, or it might suggest that you are at higher risk for developing diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. I was one of the service's earliest testers, and it turned out I had a blood marker that was important to know about when I later had a stroke. In my case, it was certainly helpful information. While I got some very valuable data, so did the company. And Wojcicki and her team are using that aggregated, anonymized data to grow a new business, pharmaceuticals. They're in the process of developing several drugs, and I presume have many more on the way. So I wanted to speak to Wojcicki about building a business off the back of their customer's genetic code and push her on the ethical privacy and security questions that 23andMe grapples with every day. And welcome to Sway. I'm so excited. Thanks, Kara. So we really have talked a lot since the beginning of your company. And 23andMe actually views its spit test at one of my events many, many years ago when you compared my spit with Rupert Murdoch's and thankfully found <laughs> out that we were not related, which was a relief to my family. Yeah, I remember asking people whether or not they smelled the asparagus in their pee at that meeting. There's a lot of confused attendees. That's right, the pee. There's a genetic component to asparagus and pee. But anyway, I want to fast forward to today. So you recently went public, and that surprised me because when you and I spoke a few years back, you said, I'm pretty adamant. I love being an independent company. I'm not dying to go public. Can you talk about what changed? You know, there was two big driving factors for me. So one, the therapeutic side, which we'll talk about obviously more later, has really started to take off. And therapeutics is expensive. So to really successfully develop a drug well, you need a decent amount of cash to invest. Second, the pandemic changed a lot with respect to virtual care. Like suddenly everyone's used to telemedicine. If I want to call my doctor and show a picture of a mole, that might be acceptable. I don't always have to go in. And so this opened up the opportunity for us to say, we're already doing a lot with people at home. Now we have this opportunity to really um, do more. And in order to really do that, I also want to have access to a liquid currency so I could do acquisitions and potentially really grow that side of the business. So does the consumer or the therapeutic become more important? Presumably the therapeutic, which is development of drugs, because that's where the money is, right? People always ask that, and it's a little bit always like asking, what, who's your favorite child? So, well, Who is your favorite child? <laughs> I love all my... <laughs> you tell me first. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I love all my children equally. And it's, it's true. Like The more we have customers who are engaged in signing up, the more we have this opportunity to make discovery. So I don't love one more than the other. Like They're both super exciting. 
Do you think, you know, you've had kind of a rocky road, we'll get into it in a second, but this idea of democratizing genetics, do you feel as if your idea was too early or did you need a pandemic to make people understand it? Because a lot of you were doing was very early, this concept. Not many people were talking about this. It's a good question. I mean, I think we were a little bit early. Like our mission statement says we help people access, understand, and benefit from the human genome. And I think about like those first years when I was first debuting the product, like I did spend a huge amount of my time just proving out that you're capable of getting information and that it's not going to create harm. And I realized like the healthcare world, I mean, you're always thinking about what are the worst things that could happen. And so we spent a huge amount of time really helping people understand that that worst case scenario is not actually going to happen. Right. But we'll get into some of that because it can, obviously. The people do still continue to have those concerns. We'll get into that in a minute. So let's go from the beginning, which is democratizing genetics. Explain what that exactly means. And also, are you democratizing genetics or commercializing them? Because as you mentioned, you're using the consumer data to help develop drugs. So explain how you look at it right now. What does that mean? Well, I think that healthcare, you should have access. I think that people should be able to say, I want to get access to a certain kind of test, and then they should be able to get access. For instance, like one thing that 23andMe has done that I'm really proud of is we have a number of our customers who found out that they have the high-risk variant for breast cancer, and they never would have otherwise qualified for a traditional reimbursed test. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to sometimes get what you want in healthcare. And so what we did is we made it very easy for people to get access to information about themselves. I mean, it's interesting. The human genome was first sequenced in 2003. And it's inexpensive, and yet it's not widely adopted. And I think part of that is is because of the way the the reimbursement system works and how people think about prevention and information. And part of what, for me, that I really want to do is to enable people to get access to a technology that I think has a real benefit for the individual and not necessarily as much as a real benefit for the entire industry. But, you know, the consumer is not the only getting access. You are too, and you're building a pharma business off of that. Talk about that trade, because that, I think, makes people nervous. It's the same thing as it does with Facebook. And we see that trade is not as good as has been thought to be. Well, I think part of what we have tried to do is create an opt-in system. And I should emphasize, like, everything about 23andMe is an opt-in. And so people elect to say, I want to participate in research. They can take the surveys that they want to take. And they can opt out at any time. And I'm really clear, like, I want to always provide choice and transparency. I never want anyone to be surprised. And so even when we signed a large collaboration with GSK, which is a a large pharmaceutical company, to say we are going to go into a development program, research and development program, to go through all of the information that we have on genetics and see, can we find targets that have a genetic foundation and develop them into drugs? We emailed all of our customers at that time to say, do you want to participate? And here's the link to opt in or here's the link to opt out. I never want somebody to be surprised. So, but when you do this, obviously people have these normal fears of their information being abused. And when it becomes genetic information, it's it's a much bigger trade, I think. Well, they can just opt out. You don't have to participate in research. I mean, listen, frankly, I think the biggest offenders in, in privacy is the healthcare system as it is. I remember like even when I was giving birth, I had to sign a consent that would say like, we can, you know, do anything we want with your data. I remember marking it up and saying like, no, (laughs) I don't want you to. But like, 
healthcare, you know, you have the California Privacy Act, you have GDPR. Healthcare is exempt from that. I think that's crazy. Like, when did I consent for my information to be shared? There's these health information exchanges. So there's a lot of benefit that comes from sharing the data. But I feel like right now, there's a lack of transparency. And so 23 minutes, like I said, I'm very committed to that choice and transparency. So given the history of tech companies, and you're a healthcare company, but tech companies in general, and you're in Silicon Valley, of not making people aware earlier on the fact that they're not just the consumer. You've heard that. They're not just the consumer, they're the product, that kind of thing. How do you fight that feeling that so much of information is, uh, that consumers are captive to all of these various data miners, I guess. I don't know what else to call them. Look, I think... I mean, when we talk about our slowdown that happened, you know, a couple of years ago, I absolutely think that was impacted by things like Cambridge Analytica and, um, you know, Golden State Killer. So I think that we absolutely get influenced by the whole industry. And the only thing we can try to do is lead by example and continuously reiterate, you know, choice and transparency to our customers. Okay, so has the move into drugs has always been part of the vision. One of the things that when you sold it to VCs, as I recall, was these tests. It was sort of focused in on the test. I mean, we always talked about there's this potential to really change healthcare with data. And I look at that as like, I want to understand the human genome. Like, how do you elucidate like really like human biology? And if I can have a better understanding of it, then I can really start to think about how do I prevent successfully and then how do I actually design therapies in a way that is more data-driven that is going to have a higher likelihood of success? And so what I proved out over time is that people can get this information. It's safe for them to get it. They can understand it. And then they can self-report. People take surveys. They're interested in taking these surveys. And that we can then do all of these genetic, we can do all this research that can genuinely find really interesting novel genetic associations. So in the new world of drug development, how are you working with the FDA now? You've had a long and storied history with the FDA. Um, for those who don't know, in 2013, the FDA demanded 23andMe immediately stop giving its customers health data until it received clearance from the agency. Two years later, you began giving customers some health information again with FDA backing, but certainly not as much. Talk a little bit about that long relationship and how it is now. Well, they definitely... Look, there was definitely change, like, because I mean, it's one thing that people don't always recognize about 23andMe is that we had actually engaged with the FDA prior to that warning letter. Um, and it was originally sort of reiterated, like, you are not a medical device and we are not going to regulate this space. And so world changes. We also started getting more into the medical world. Um, and it was really clear, like, we did not, we did not speak the language of the FDA. And, you know, what I learned is like, it's like the DMV. When you go to the DMV, you don't negotiate whether or not you need a vision test. You just do it. And there's parts of the FDA that you need to have something similar. Like there's a form of obedience. Like when they tell you that you need to do something, you just need to do it. And I think what I've learned is they do have a global picture that is bigger than what I can see. So one is there's a lot of respect for the fact that there's a lot of bad actors that are out there generally. Second is that they do have a job of protecting public safety. And the onus is on us to prove out that something is safe. I find that the FDA can be quite rational when you're speaking in data. And so if you have a new idea, it just has to be proven out. So I think that's where it's like it's really coming up with a reasonable plan that is going to prove out that, you know, something actually 
works. And there's like plenty of things. Again, we've all seen the bad actors. Like there's definitely bad actors that come. Let me go into that. Obviously, the Theranos (laughs) trial, you knew I was going to get to this, is unfolding as we speak. We both know Elizabeth Holmes. I think you know her better than I do. But this is a criminal fraud case against Elizabeth Holmes. Her company's blood test, which did not work, was brought to market skirting the FDA. Are you watching the trial? And I'd love your reaction. I haven't watched it. I just have um, been busy. Um, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I've watched the movies, I've read about it, and obviously I did know it. And we have that, you know, I've seen all the various press of, you know, are you compared to her? I mean, yeah, her name comes up all the time and (laughs) her name comes up all the time. And look, I think to me, the number one takeaway with Theranos is, frankly, the scientific literacy in this country. So one thing that just struck me, I would go to these conferences and Elizabeth would present And it drove me and a lot of the scientists in my company that there was no one with a scientific background who was asking her the hard questions. And so I, it just- Why didn't you pipe up, Anne? (laughs) We used to say all the time, we were, listen, there there was one thing like within the company, like there was always this sense of mystery. People in the company talked about all the time. Like we just like don't, I remember actually my head of medical at the time was like, there's no way it works. Like what she's saying just like is not- yeah, it's just like there was this th- this whole world within like the medical world was saying like, listen, like we just don't believe like how can this possibly work? And then where's the data to prove it? Like, again, going to this sort of FDA question that you're talking about is like people want to see the data. You have an obligation to society to prove out how something works. And so it's one thing when people would ask about 23andMe is I was like, we have proven out in ad nauseum like how things work. Like we have 200 publications. Like when there's a controversial idea about us, we publish on it to prove out. So then I feel armed. I can go to a you know scientific meeting or I can talk to others and I can say like, I actually have the data. You show me your data. And so this was a case where I was disappointed by the world. Like no I mean, one would say anything. So you would you would be at these investor conferences, right? Not just investor conferences, but like, you know, all these, like the various hoopla conferences. And there's a lot of big names and people would interview and it never got into the deep science. And like, how does this really work? And there was sort of seen as like, well, it's a lot of trade secret. But I mean, look, I just think that in general, for all companies in the healthcare space, people need to push on them about exactly how is the science working and where are the publications? Like, where's the backup? Like, that's the key. And so I just encourage like that industry and people who are investing in, in like looking at this area, there's a lot of companies that promise what is happening, but where really are those publications? Yes, but she had such a good picture of her posing with a drop of blood and it looks so I cool. Know. Yeah. Alyssa, <laughs> the, the idea was a, is, a, is amazing. I mean- and- So is invisibility. <laughs> so do you think it will lead to stricter government oversight over biotech? Do you think this ha- is a moment or not? Well, I mean, what's interesting is it's unclear who regulates diagnostics. So there's this laboratory developed test world and then 23andMe is under FDA. So they can skirt it. They can skirt it a bit. And so there's something actually that is being discussed called the Valid Act, which would potentially pull in, and again, I'm not an expert in this, but it would pull in some of these laboratory-developed tests into the FDA purview. So look, I think that there's, um, there's a really interesting world that's coming of new types of diagnostics. So what is that right kind of regulatory path for all of this? So look, I think diagnostics are an amazing industry. And I do think that, you know, there's an obligation to prove that it works. So the trust and scrutiny thing, do you think it will have a a long tail of trust and scrutiny? It's just an outlier. Look, I think there's a lot of companies out there that are, I mean, look, I think the reason why we have an agency like the FDA is because there's a lot of companies that um, have products that don't necessarily work. And so 
Elizabeth's just one of, I mean, she's different because she was, there was an, again, I, she's in court, but like, alleged, there's, the, allegedly. there's the alleged fraud. So there's the alleged like intentional manipulation of data and fraud. That said, like there's other companies out there that I see where I think they have products that don't work. Can you name them? No. Okay. Just asking. <laughs> but I think that it's, um, I mean, look, I just think that there's, there's a lack of regulation in, in some areas, which is why you have something like the Valid Act. Yeah. So in August, the Times interviewed female founders in Silicon Valley, talked constantly about being compared to Elizabeth Holmes and facing additional bias and scrutiny. Have you experienced that? Do you see that happening? I mean, I think, I, look, I get the Elizabeth question all the time, but it's usually pretty easy to shut down. Like, I, I have a ton of data and I just like don't, you know, healthcare's always been an industry with a lot of, you know, there's a lot of snake oil. And so the reason why, like, it's important to prove out everything that you're saying. So, yeah, it, it comes up quite a bit. And it's, I mean, look, there's all of the very typical, like, again, you're compared to another woman. It definitely impacts. Like, listen, there's absolutely this world of, you know, women getting more criticized on it because of Elizabeth. So 100% here, but I think... And none of the men. Yeah, I mean, look, the way that I try to combat it is like, one, I don't... It is what it is. And the best thing for me to do is build out a better network of support, like women. Like, there's a number of women who've left 23andMe and are CEOs of their own company. Like, that's pretty awesome. And there's like, the more that there's a community and there's more there's a balance and the more that women are out there mentoring other women and like we're creating the right kind of community and the right kind of balance, you're going to not get as many questions that are just about like, how are you not like Elizabeth? And like, how do you manage, you know, having children while you run a company? Like, you just like, the number one thing we need to do is just like solve the problem. I have not, officially, I have not asked you that. So just <laughs> I, Well, listen, I can start breastfeeding any moment. I mean, there's like, I, I joke, like there's all kinds of ways. Like the best thing that we can do is support each other and change the world, like change the community. And so that's what I really spend a lot of time thinking about and focusing on. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Dr. Anthony Fauci, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Ann Wojcicki after the break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. 
New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. One of the things that does deserve scrutiny is how you and, and companies like you deal with privacy. So what do you say to people who think, okay, I want insight into my genes, but I'm not comfortable having that data in the hands of a private company. I think about that a lot with my personal data right now. Every time I open them up, I'm like, what are they getting here in my phone? I think quite a bit about it. But when it comes to genetic data, it's a valid question for people to understand, like, what happens to that data? Look, the reality, I think it goes to some of the things that the FDA thinks about. What's the risk versus what's the potential reward? And in my mind, there's a huge potential reward from understanding the human genome. I think that the potential for really understanding how you prevent human disease, how you can better manage it, and how you can better treat it. I like I never want to be in chronic disease management. I want to be in chronic disease prevention. So there's just a in my mind, there's like a huge fascinating opportunity to understand. But should there be more regulation to keep data private that isn't largely left to companies? I mean, there's the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. That's a law preventing employers from discriminating against you because of your genetic information. Yeah. And I think there are some privacy discussions. And we have a coalition that we've put together of companies that are all coming together and setting a standard. And again, Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act could absolutely be extended to areas like life insurance and long-term care. I think those are sort of ripe discussions to be had. We also, like, we're really clear, like, we do not participate in law enforcement. All right. So let's talk, I was going to ask that because Mm -hmm. genetic databases are a goldmine for law enforcement. And in 2018, police used publicly available genealogy database to track DNA of the Golden State Killer, which you referenced. Do you get a lot of requests from law enforcement and how do you deal with them? Well, we've been really, it was fun. One of our science advisors in the early days said, he's like, oh, you know, this great business idea for you. You could have America's Most Wanted. And, and I said, that's, that's great. That's, that's, not, that's not for 23andMe. Um, like, we're not doing that. Oh, you could find those people genetically? Well, he was just like saying, like, you could have, you, you could be a, an assistance to crime discovery. And I said, 23andMe has a single mission. It's about the benefit. And we are not involved in law enforcement. We've had requests from law enforcement. We've been able to fight them all. You know, look, there's people out there who want to have their genetic information uploaded to different groups. And 23andMe does allow people to download their DNA and do what they want with it. But it's not a business area that 23andMe is ever going to get into. Right. So one of the things your website says, we will closely scrutinize all law enforcement requests and we'll only comply with court orders, subpoenas, search warrants, and other requests that we determine are legally valid. Would you ever turn over customer data to law enforcement? What would be the moment you would do that? I mean, look, you would have to really, I mean... I would do everything I can to really prevent that. We have not had, we've not gotten into that situation. And I think that we, with over 11 million people, we're now at a point where I think we're relatively well-established. You have never yet given over international law enforcement? No. Okay. In 2019, officials of the Pentagon warned members of the military that, quote, direct consumer genetics are largely unregulated and could expose personal and genetic information and potentially create unintended security consequences and increase risk to the joint force and mission. What do you say to that? I think that the government, for whatever reason, there's this obsession with China. We have no interaction with China. We are not doing any research there. We have some stuff on the therapeutic side. There's a company called Wuxi that, again, many pharma companies work with. This is an investor in 23andMe. They hold less than 1% of your company. There's nothing related to genetic data. Um, There's an information war that's going on with respect to understanding the human genome. And China absolutely recognize that, and they want to win it. 
Yes, they're sprinting ahead in the war for genetic information. They are sprinting ahead with, and they have Beijing Genome Institute. They are sequencing huge numbers of people. They collect medical, I mean, they're doing a lot. And so the U.S., frankly, is just behind. Is this a war we want to win? Look, I think information is always valuable, and especially when it's as important as the code of life. Like, I'm very focused on the prevention and the utilization and, and therapeutic development. And like the U.K., also has the UK Biobank. They have an incredible initiatives going on genetics. And I think the US absolutely needs to be finding a way to help people understand what the risk reward is and that we need to have significant efforts really understanding what the human genome means. So we're losing this genetic race to China. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we spend more of our time. I, I absolutely honor all of the privacy discussions and the questions on choice. But at the same time, there's a huge world of people who want to participate and want to be part of this and want us to make a real dent in the information war of like, what does the human genome mean? And we should absolutely embrace that and put real money into understanding what the human genome means. But one of the things you have said is anyone who tells you that a hack is not possible is lying. When you think about protections against hackers, obviously China has shown in a lot of hacking recently, along with some other countries. How do you balance the idea of a threat to creating what you're talking about with attacks by China and other entities? I don't believe you can live in a world of fear. I mean, I think that we absolutely have to, you know, figure out how we are going to do everything possible to prevent an attack. So in some ways, the most important thing to do is to understand that you can never live in a world of zero risk and that it's what Andy Grove said, the paranoid survive. So you have to be hypervigilant, hyperparanoid about it. So we're highly aware. We think about it all the time. We think about how we structure the database in ways so that the genetic information is stored separately from the you know, the self-reported information and any identifiable information. So it's super important how we structure it. Um, and the most important thing that we can do is, you know, be transparent with our customers, make sure people understand risk. And I think that, again, it's all about risk reward. I think the benefits are there. So what are the implications of us losing a genetic genome race with China? Well, I think it's not known. I mean, but I think what's the value of having information? You know, what's the value of the types of information that Facebook has? Like, I never would have occurred to me when Facebook started that they would influence elections. So I think the reality is I can conceptually grasp the idea that understanding your human genome is really important and all the different reasons why and exactly how you're going to be able to manage it. I can absolutely identify therapeutics, prevention, other lifestyle components, but I think information about something as fundamental as humans and how we operate is really important to at least be on par. And we are not. Well, I think we should excel. And in what format would that be? Well, look, I the reality is it's a data question. You need a lot of data and to really understand what this means. I mean, there's so much interesting potential of how you could eliminate some human disease. And on, again, I think a lot about the prevention side. It's going to be important, especially in this world of, of CRISPR and the ability of, you know, groups that are thinking about, you know, synthetic biology. Like, you want to understand how the human genome works. Right. So let me, speaking of which, talk about the pandemic heightening concerns about the sharing of biometric information. Um, there is, you know, a lot of the a lot of the misinformation coming out has to do with biotracking, biomanipulation. Bill Gates put a chip in this vaccine and now he's tracking me. And there's all this resistance to taking vaccines, 
having yourself checked, my body, you know, I don't trust the scientists. Were you surprised by all this? And what has to happen to push that back? Because it's, a, it's an idea of total paranoia as opposed to just normal paranoia. Yeah. I, I mean, look, we spend a lot of time, obviously, in the house thinking about misinformation. And, you know, and it's interesting. Like, I remember when H1N1 came out and there was like all those long lines to get the vaccine. Like, and it wasn't that long ago. And I mean, it's really just a remarkable change. And I think that there is that question that the tone from Trump in those early days, like really set us all on a totally different type of course. And I do think one of my biggest takeaways, and again, it's been part of the ethos of 23 Me since the beginning, is that healthcare has to move from a hierarchical system to something that people can actually relate to. Meaning we're telling you to take this. Well, like, I think the white coat, um, any package insert is impossible to read. Drugs are really hard to say. It's a whole language you don't understand. Like, most people leave their doctor's office feeling stupid. And I think that that has to change if you're ever going to fix this misinformation. Because people gravitate to Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop because, like, she makes it accessible. And she doesn't talk down to you. And I think that if we're going to solve misinformation, I think one of the most important things the healthcare world needs to do is actually have more of a partnership with people and build that trust. Like people don't believe in the hierarchy anymore. Has it gotten worse in the pandemic? Oh, of course. There's been an undercurrent where people don't really trust. And now I think it obviously exploded and it exploded in part because it was that door opened up with, you know, Trump's resistance to actually acknowledging everything that was happening. Um, but I do think that the the path forward is more of a world where, um, you know, frankly, which virtual care has started to, to help. Like, I want to find a physician that I can relate to that's going to actually spend the time talking to me. And you're starting to see this explosion with like all kinds of, you know, very personalized systems that are going to appeal to, you know, you and what you want. And then and then you're going to you're going to relate. All right. The last question, talking about the future of genetic testing, you said that you think the world your children will live in will be entirely different from the one we are living in now. What does that mean for the world your children will live in? I mean, one thing I've always, like I tell my kids all the time, you know, healthcare is the sum of what you've done every day. It's cumulative. And I think the thing that's really exciting is when I look at the world of wearables and the ability to track yourself and actually measure how you're doing, um, how much you're sleeping. Um, people want a path to try to be healthier. And it's hard to know what are the decisions that they should actually make. And I think with all of this information, you'll be able to start changing your life. Like I showed my sleep patterns from my iPhone to someone on my health R&D team. And he goes, whoa, you really got like some, some erratic sleep. And you know, there's like risk factors, like your higher risk for diabetes and other things from it. And it was only kind of that awareness when I said like, holy cow, like I should change this. And so getting the data, data really does, I think, help drive better decisions. And I think that I have an opportunity with my kids of like really knowing what their risks are. And I think that the combination of genetics plus all of these various ways of phenotyping, of, you know, collecting information about you and how you're living your life is really going to create a different type of healthcare experience. Is there a point where there's too much data or there's no decisions left? I mean, the thing that I always loved about genetics is this intersection between genes and environment. And whether it's a good choice or it's a bad choice, you're always going to have choice. And um, 
you know, and I think then you just have more informed choice. And so both yours and my two-year-olds will be what? Well, one, you should get your two-year-old genotyped. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, We could see if we're related. That'd be so cute. (laughs) No, Um, not really. (laughs) Not you. Not Rupert Murdoch. None of you are related to me. Um, I... I mean, look, I think I think about with my two-year-old is that opportunity to give her the best chance of being healthy, you know, when she's 80. And, you know, I think about things like, you know, my dad has atrial fibrillation. And I think about like, okay, there's genetic risk factors for this. Like if, if you'd known, like, are there things that you would change? Like, would he potentially not have been such an avid marathoner? And so I think about those types of long-term decisions, are, are there ways I can help her really, you know, have, make informed choices about what she, actions that she wants to do or things that she's interested in? So um, I think it's, I think genetics is absolutely going to be part of my two-year-old's healthcare in her whole life. Until she lives until when? Oh, I'm not, I'm not in that world of like, oh, I want to be 120. Like, I think you want to like thrive when you're older. You want to be like an awesome, you know, kicking at 90 year old. And Yes, Kara. Thank you so much. It's so fun. It's always fun. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Caitlin O'Keefe, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Kristen Lynn. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with more proof that I'm not related to Rupert Murdoch, I'm not so sure about Tucker Carlson, though. Download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.